Wolfing Down Food Science. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Wolfing Down Food Science. We are here today with an amazing educator, Dr. Sarah Ash. Um, she has won many awards, but I wanted to say the most uh, amazing thing um, that happened, I think, for, for me was when her kids visited on the last day of the last class that she taught. And we were talking after this, um, having some snacks and stuff, and they calculated that she had taught, wait for it, 30,000 students in her <laughs> career. So I think that is just an amazing statistic. So uh, so welcome, Dr. Ash. Thank you. Glad to be here. So sorry that I was I wiggled around getting to take one of your classes. It seemed like maybe I missed uh, or I came in right after you retired. Um, but I've heard many great things through the grapevine at NC State about <laughs> nutrition courses. Well, thanks. I, I really enjoyed teaching. I just I love it. I loved it. Um, and I, I do miss it. And every now and again, I threaten to come back and do it some more. <laughs> please, please come back. <laughs> I don't think anybody would have checked. No. <laughs> so uh, what, cl what classes did you teach, Dr. Ash? Oh, I taught a lot of different classes over the years. I started out teaching the big intro class, intro, Introduction to Human Nutrition. Um, I added um, what came to be called Human Nutrition and Chronic Disease um, after that, which actually Dr. Natalie Cook and I are in the process of revamping to put online this summer, I guess day after tomorrow, <laughs> actually. Um, so that's actually been a lot of fun. Um, and then I taught a variety of courses that got changed over the years. I taught a community nutrition course, a lifestyle, lifestyle nutrition course. Um, and then I started teaching a U.S. food history class, which um, is probably one of the favorite, my favorite classes I think I've ever taught. It was called was, Eating Through American History. So you've, you have seen a lot in your time as an educator, specifically in nutrition. How has nutrition education changed over your career? Um, I think for me, the biggest thing that's changed is just the volume of knowledge. You know, and I, when I think back to when I first started teaching in 1988, um, when I first started teaching that intro class, I could get through so many more topics. I mean, not only did I cover all the, the, the macronutrients, carbohydrate, fat, protein, um, I covered all the vitamins. I mean, I went through vitamin by vitamin. Here's the, you know, there's function. I went through all the minerals. And then I did food, a little bit of food processing. I even did a little bit of food safety. I did weight control. I did, you know, a little bit of eating disorder. I did all of these different topics. And over time, I've had to jettison so many of them because they're new things that I had to talk about. So all of a sudden, mm -hmm. I have to, what are trans fatty acids? You know, what, what about omega-3 fatty acids? And what's this glycemic index? And, you know, more recently, the keto diet and gluten. And it's it's just, you know, and, and what's interesting is that for the most part, once we got, you know, as I started to get rid of all the basic nutrition and add sort of this new, you know, new knowledge, newer knowledge in nutrition, that everyone was really excited about. Um, and it, it usually took about five years before 
the excitement kind of waned and then there was something new. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, well, I used to have to talk about this, but, you know, we used to talk a lot about antioxidants, but I don't know, does anybody really care about antioxidants anymore? Maybe not. <laughs> so <clears throat> it's also been a little frustrating just trying to keep up with the latest, you know, the latest. Yeah. latest. So I think you, you kind of addressed that that first part, Sarah, but the idea of what has changed more, um, this discipline of nutrition, obviously it's expanded dramatically, but um, what are the changes in the way students learn or have there been changes in the way your students learn over time? That's a good question. I don't know that there's been so much of a change in the way students learn as there's been a change in the way we teach. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, many of us, myself included, uh, certainly my generation of university professors were never taught how to teach. And, you know, we just were taught how to write grant proposals and do research and, you know, write papers. But then we were just put in the classroom and, you know, go deep. And so, you know, most of us just did what we saw our, you know, our professors doing. You know, we followed that model. And um, and and I sort of had an epiphany, I don't know, many years ago now. I, I got involved in a professional development program associated with teaching. And, and and I really had this sort of aha moment where, you know, we have that expression, it's as plain as the nose on your face. And I thought to myself, well, you can't see your nose. And, like, <laughs> <laughs> and, and so what I realized was that I, you know, because you would say, well, why don't the, why aren't the students getting this? I mean, it, it's so obvious, right? Isn't it so obvious? And that's when I realized that you had to hold up a mirror for the students. You know, it wasn't obvious to them and that, that, University professors are a self-selected population. You know, we we continued our education. We got master's degrees and PhDs because we were good at it. You know, we figured out basically how to teach ourselves because most of our professors weren't very good at teaching either. Um, and that's when I realized that, you know, you, you have to help students figure it out. You have to show them how to think, basically, that, you know, there will always be some students who will figure it out on their own, but, you know, a lot of them won't. And so I think for me, at least, what's changed is just doing a lot more scaffolding, um, a lot more being more transparent about how one goes about solving problems, thinking about things. Um, So I think think it's more the way we teach and, and what we understand about teaching this change more so than the way students learn. Dr. Ash, you've done some research relating to the deal model, and I hate to be so blunt, but what is the deal? Could you explain this model and the use of critical reflection and how it's tied to learning? Sure. That's actually a a good segue from what I was just talking about. So deal Mm -hmm. stands for describe, examine, articulate learning. And it came out of work that I was doing with some colleagues around reflection and service learning. So being out in the community, learning from experience out in the community. And at the time that we got started with all of this, there was a big push to get a better handle on what students really were learning out in the community um, to to better justify the time and effort that service learning um, takes as an approach to teaching. And And at that time, most of the assessment that was being done involved surveys and students would say things like, you know, I learned a lot. Okay, well, what did what did you learn? (laughs) I learned a lot. (laughs) I was like, okay, that's great. But 
And one of the big concerns in service learning is that students either learn nothing or they can learn the wrong things too, because they're oftentimes put in environments that are very different from their own. And they come in with assumptions that they don't always get disabused of, perhaps, you know, problematic assumptions. And actually one of my favorite uh, examples that really sort of set a lot of the work that I did in motion came from a student who wrote, you know, about his experience. You know, it was just so transformative for him. And he hoped that when his children were his age, they would be able to have a similar experience. And I thought to myself, so what you're saying is you hope when your children are your age, there are still poor people to help. <laughs> and I was like, this is not a good learning. Smart. <laughs> And, you know, we did tend to see a lot of that in service learning, a lot of warm fuzzies that, you know, weren't really exactly what we were hoping for. So anyway, the deal model is a very structured um, reflection tool, and it's designed, again, to provide that scaffolding to help students work through thinking. So there's a reflection component with lots of guiding questions and then more guiding questions to help them articulate what they've learned. For those of us that didn't get to experience service learning, could you describe what that entails? Sure. So the, the general definition of service learning is that there's there is service in the community that's coupled with an academic component. So the learning typically is done in the context of a course. And so when I taught life cycle nutrition, for example, students might go and volunteer at a um, assisted living facility, for example, and the hope was that they would see some of the things that they were learning about nutrition in older adults in the assisted living facility. Interestingly enough, oftentimes what they would learn when they were out there is that when you get to be 80, you don't care what you eat anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and having some young person come in and say, oh, you really should watch your sodium intake. is like, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> not interested uh, <laughs> myself and to me that was important you know mm -hmm. because there you know you you open up the chapter on older adults and you learn all this stuff and it's all very interesting and important and then you get out in the real world and and it's like well maybe it's a little bit different you know maybe they're coming from a very different place <laughs> um, yes. so so yeah um so students students can learn about the act they can you know see what what is the same and different with respect to the academic content. They can also learn about themselves. They can learn mm -hmm. about, you know, their strengths, their weaknesses, and they can also learn about um, civic engagement more generally, you know, looking at organizations and how they do their work. A lot of, a lot of service learning happens in the context of nonprofits. So. Very, very cool. So there's a ton of information out there about nutrition and what we're supposed to eat, what we should eat, what amounts of the ratios of things we're supposed to eat. And then we won't even talk about supplements. <laughs> like, that's a whole another thing. So another how, how do you recommend that consumers find the best information about nutrition? You know, that's just so hard. Um, I, you know, it's funny. I've been thinking about this recently because I've, I've been, you know, I started in nutrition back in the, 1980. So I've been in, in connected to the field for a long time and and I've seen this transition. It's happened over time, you know, moving away from, you know, focusing on deficiency diseases to focusing on chronic disease and, and you know, chronic disease is so complicated 
there's so many of them. There's so many factors. You know, people are complicated. The relationship we have with food is so complicated. Um, you know, I think what I've come to appreciate is that, that maybe the worst thing that we do is try to tell people what to eat sometimes. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I, I've, I've almost come to think that my plate is sort of the epitome of what's wrong with dietary advice because it's it isn't natural you know there's nothing natural or not I shouldn't say natural is maybe not the right word but when you think about traditional food ways um you know most traditional food ways involve soups and goulashes and pastas and sauces and you know mixtures of foods they don't involve a piece of meat over here and a half a cup of you know, <laughs> hard, you know three quarters of a cup of vegetables with a glass of milk on the side um and and I've come to realize that that's just so uniquely American, and and I think it drives a lot of what's problematic <laughs> with how we give nutrition advice. Um, so I, I think it's really hard, and you know I've always said it, it it's as simple as variety and moderation, and it's as hard as variety and moderation <laughs> um, because we don't have those deeply rooted food ways, you know, that we can call upon. And we become so um, habituated to this idea that there's going to be the next new piece of information. You know, what's the latest research that's going to tell us what we should eat, how we should eat, how much of we, you know, what we shouldn't eat. Um, so I don't, I don't know how to answer your question and tell you the truth. Um, I, I do think it's very hard. So on a related topic, obviously there there are many diets out there, whether they're what we consider a fad diet or just just traditional ways of of eating but it it does seem to me that eating a healthy diet over a lifespan is not really that exciting um and i remember one part that i i had the opportunity to sit in on for your history of foods course dealt with marketing and how effectively food has been marketed to the consumer over the years so do you think that there's a way or do you think we'll ever get to the point where we will be able to effectively market a healthy diet to that same degree? I, I think it's just so hard in part because there's so many competing voices out there. You know, there's so many other people and entities doing that marketing and people are constantly bombarded with all of these messages. Um, and, and a healthy diet is boring. I mean, it, you know, it's, it, I mean, it, it is when years ago I was going to write a, a diet book with a friend of mine. Um, and and she said, Sarah, it, it has to be there has it has to be sexy. You know, you've got to have a hook. And I'm like, I don't have a hook. You know, it's like, <laughs> variety and moderate. This is why variety and moderation is good for you. Like, I don't think we're selling any books. <laughs> Never went anywhere. Um, I, I think it's hard. I think it's really, really hard. And, um, you know, it, and people's lives are so different now, too. People are looking for convenience and, you know, and cost is an issue. And I don't know. I mean, I hate to be Debbie Downer, but <laughs> it is just really, really hard. And, you know, where's the money going to come from to do all that marketing, too? Yeah. Yeah, this seems like a really just a really tough challenge to, to to deal with. So, yeah, I always think everything in moderation, including moderation. Otherwise, it's going to be a pretty boring life. Yeah. Mm -hmm.
I would love to hear a little bit more about the history of foods course and do you talk about um, how our relationship to food has changed as well as the information that we have regarding to nutrition has changed. Why does it seem like nutrition information is constantly changing? Um, you have this unique perspective as a educator over decades now. So um, I'm curious to know what's your perspective on that? Great. Yeah, I think there's sort of two parts, two components to that question. I'll take the second one first, why it seems like nutrition information is constantly changing. That's because it is, you know, it, it's a science um, and science is, you know, is a process. We're constantly learning. We're constantly moving into um, more, you know, finer and finer details of how things work in the body, components of food itself. And, and I think the challenge for nutrition is that unlike a lot of other sciences or other disciplines more generally, um, we want that information now. We want to be able to use that information now because it, it, it has impact, right? Um, so new discoveries in physics or chemistry or whatever, you know, they're, they're fascinating, you know, like to learn about them. They're important, but they, they don't always have that immediate impact on, you know, the entire, entire population. <laughs> and, and people are interested in diet because it's personal, right? It's very personal. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I think that's a challenge when you have something that, you know, that is constantly evolving in terms of the, in terms of the knowledge base, um, in terms of sort of the history, I think for me, one of the most fascinating things that I've come to appreciate about the history of food in the United States is our early experience with guilt around food that, again, I would argue is very uniquely American that you don't find in in other cultures. And it really, you know, it came from a period of time in the 1800s when food was really pretty abundant here, particularly compared to, you know, places in Europe. And, you know, we were expanding the the size of the country, able to grow corn to feed animals and wheat to feed humans and um, and Americans were seen as very gluttonous. And that contributed to the first wave of health reformers in the 1800s, people like Sylvester Graham and John Harvey Kellogg, um, who were motivated in part by this concept of, you know, gluttony is sin. And, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't stimulate your appetite any more than you, you know, you shouldn't be stimulated by food any more than you should be stimulated by sex. I mean, they're very Victorian um, views of, of the world more generally during that period of time. And I think it just kind of stuck with us. And then and then as the science and nutrition sort of exploded with the discovery of vitamins, um, it just it just came to be, oh, this is how we th- this is how we should think about food. We, we should think about it from a very scientific perspective. The body is a machine. We need to feed the machine. We shouldn't be worrying about, you know, taste and pleasure and all of that. Um, and then we had a couple of wars, world wars, and it was important to figure out how to feed the troops and that, you know, OK, so now we need some dietary allowances and everything, you know, and then we ended up with food groups and pyramids and plates, you know. <laughs> Here we are. Back Here we are. So. Riddled with guilt and scientific information. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful summary page. And I, <laughs> not knowing what to do with this. <laughs> and I was going to make. I was going to make one more comparison. Actually, I've forgotten the first part. You know, you asked about you know nutrition 
you know, research changing. I think COVID has been a really good example of that in a very concentrated time period. I mean, COVID mm-hmm. happened and there's all this research and it was do this and don't do that. And, you know, you know, wash all your things with Clorox and, um, and, you know, we were doing the best we could with the information that we had, right? I mean, public health officials are doing the best they could with the information that they had at the time. And then, you know, then information changes, but we weren't, you know, a lot of people found that problematic. It's like, why did you tell us that when it wasn't true? And well, because, you know, that's just the nature of inquiry and research and it takes a while to sort things out. It feels like almost like a lie to people, yeah. not an upgrade of information that the people who are in charge don't really know what they're talking about because now they've changed. <laughs> exactly. When really this is just the process. Exactly. And I think that's what leads people to pay attention to other voices you know, be willing to accept other ways of thinking about things because they don't you know, trust what they hear from more traditional sources. We should just come out with information five. Same approach as uh, iPhones. And then wait, <laughs> yeah. uh, now the new information six has come out. So everybody check out this information six. So, um, yeah, may- maybe if we'd done that, consumers would have been more upset- accepting like, oh, I have to trade in my old information and get some new. So, yes. Yeah. Wouldn't it be great if people would stand in line to get that? (laughs) (laughs) We've been going over the USDA's questions to put into the dietary guidelines for for the Americans. Seems like it's changing every five years. And that's kind of going in line with what you're seeing with the updates in the nutrition information. Do you recommend that people use those guidelines to find more um, reliable information? Or are there other sources that you would recommend? No, I think I think the U.S. dietary guidelines are a really great place to start. And I'm particularly pleased that in the last several years, they've moved very much to thinking about food patterns or patterns of intake rather than focusing on this nutrient or that nutrient. So if you go to the dietary guidelines website now, you'll see emphasis on the Mediterranean diet, the so-called DASH diet, which was originally created for hypertension treatment. but or prevention, but it's really just a healthful diet with lots of fruits and vegetables. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I you know, I don't want to dismiss all of the recommendations that come out. <laughs> they do the best that they can, but I do worry sometimes that there's just a little too, emph- too much emphasis on trying to micromanage one's diet. Um, I know one of the taglines in, in the most recent dietary guidelines is make every bite count, which to me is just kind of Makes me nervous. It's like a lot of pressure. <laughs> Wait a minute. Can I have that Snickers bar? <laughs> what does that count for? Where does that account? <laughs> oh. So what do you see as the next big challenge in nutrition and nutrition education? You know, the thing that's coming down the pike is what's called precision nutrition or personalized nutrition. Um, it's a combination of what's called nutrigenetics and nutrigenomics or the interrelationship between genes and the food that you eat, your genes, your genetic material and the foods that you eat. Um, And, you know, there's already some of that that shows up on 23andMe, you know, type websites where you send in your saliva sample and they tell you what your risk is for this or that or the other disease. Um, And it's only a matter of time before nutrition gets layered over that, into that, under that. (laughs) And, And I think that's going to be interesting. Um, You know, I think it has tremendous 
potential, but it also is fraught because, you know, again, genetics is complicated and, you know, food is complicated and people are complicated. Um, so that's certainly the next wave that's coming. Um, and I think it's going to be a challenge for nutrition educators to figure out how to present that information again, because, you know, what, what do we know? What do we know now? And what will we know five years from now or 10 years from now? And I think we have to be careful not to oversell you know, what, what we think we know. There have already been a few examples in the recent past of places where we thought we had, oh, this is you know, something that this area is telling us about this particular diet disease relationship that turned out maybe not so much. So I, I think that's going to be a big challenge. And genetics is complicated, and so, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm always having to go back and, okay, wait a minute, what's an allele? Okay, wait a minute. <laughs> um, and, and so I think it, it, it's going to be that much more of a challenge to try to, for nutritionists to understand it, first of all, and then to be able to communicate it to the public. It's going to be a big challenge. I just wanted to take a moment and thank all the nutrition educators out there because it is such a big undertaking to try and educate us on how to run our body um, safely and also effectively and efficiently. So this information is always overturning. Literally year by year, we're getting more information. And thank you for trying to sort that all out for us and help us get some clarity on that. So, Dr. Sarah Ash, uh, we wanted to thank you so much for taking the time to to spend some time with us and talk about all of these areas of nutrition and how it's changing so quickly. Thank you so much for um, for spending some time on uh, Wolfing Down Food Science. My pleasure. Thank you. If you'd like to find out more about our podcast, Wolfing Down Food Science, please check us out at NCSU's Food Bioprocessing and Nutrition Science website, where you can find our show notes, reference links, and more. You can find out more about NC State, our department, and FS201, the amazing course that has brought us all together, on our website as well. Please don't forget to subscribe to Wolfing Down Food Science wherever you stream your podcasts like Spotify and iTunes. Thanks for tuning in to Wolfing Down Food Science. See you next time.